Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Blackfin Coffee. Blackfin Coffee is an e-commerce roasting brand based in Seattle, Washington, and I want to tell you about them. I was really inspired by the brand's focus initially to partner with PNW Protectors to lock arms and help save the southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest. For more information, visit them at www.blackfin.coffee. That's blackfin.coffee. For our listeners, Blackfin will be offering 20% off your first purchase with the promo code BREACHEXTINCTION20 at checkout. Again, head over to blackfin.coffee and redeem your promo code today. Alrighty, guys, welcome back uh, to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week I have Eric Netherland with me. He does um, some salmon recovery efforts and he's going to tell us about who he is and um, what he's doing. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, as you said, my name is Eric Netherland, and I'm in the Governor's Salmon Recover Office. I'm the executive coordinator of that office. It's a small office responsible for coordinating the activities of salmon recovery for Washington, and it's located. Uh, office is actually located in a larger agency called the Recreation and Conservation Office, and we work closely with our counterparts in the governor's office, uh, as well as with uh, the tribes. We work with state agencies, our federal partners, and all of the local organizations that are doing work day in and day out uh, across the landscape in Washington to do recovery. Excellent. So how did you get into this field? Yeah, well, I've always been interested in the outdoors. and eventually, like most people, went to school and got a degree in biology. But I really began working with salmon um, about 15 years ago after getting out of um, graduate school and really was working with salmon in the Columbia River. And then about two years ago, took this position with the Governor Salmon Recovery Office. Um, and before that, was working with the state agency Department of Fish and Wildlife with their science team uh, leading up their fishery science for Department of Fish and Wildlife, and uh, which is does a whole lot of work with salmon. Awesome. Um, so I know in the, because we had talked a little bit earlier that you said you were from Florida and you came to Washington. Um, that's quite the jump there, which is pretty cool. What made you stay in Washington? I'm curious. Yeah, so uh, that's right. We I grew up in Florida, and like uh, like most people, uh, spent a lot of time outdoors in Florida. But um, I actually took a trip took a trip out west, and um, just fell in love with the area, and was looking for a place that was quite a bit different from Florida, and ended up finding a place that was at the opposite end of the country. <laughs> And in many ways, weather-wise, is a lot different as well. But I really just fell in love with with everything that that Washington is. You know, you have water, you have the mountains, you've got all of these incredible bays and inlets, 
uh, from all the way in South Puget Sound up to the San Juans. And um, yeah, then, and of course, salmon and orca. And my earlier career was actually working with birds, as we talked about, um, and doing sort of hawk migration work. But when I came out to Washington and uh, went to grad school after that, really is when I got interested in salmon, like I said, about 15 years ago. And it was really the salmon themselves that sort of brought me to the current job and just my interest in in all that's happening in and around salmon. That's awesome. Yeah, I kind of have a similar story. I I went to school in Florida, so that was where I was, and I moved to Arizona briefly, but I took a trip to Washington, and I was like, I have to Mm -hmm. move here. It's amazing. Um, Yeah, there's so much the state has to offer. So you were brought here by the salmon. So tell us a little bit about them. Why are they so vital to Washington's watersheds? Yeah, so one, maybe about, maybe start with the history of salmon. You know, salmon have been around for millions of years, which many people don't know, and I certainly didn't know until I, until I started learning about salmon. And we have five species of salmon in Washington, uh, and then also steelhead. And, um, you know, they, they've been here for millions of years, and salmon have a long history with the Native American tribes in the Pacific Nor- Northwest, and they really play a critical role. They have always played a critical role in terms of food, in terms of uh, tribes' economy, and then subsequent uh, people that moved here, their economies. And for Native American tribes, you know, there's a significance for the culture and their traditions. But then as Europeans began to settle, we did a lot of things that impacted impacted salmon, and maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in terms of um, why they're vital, uh, one is vital having salmon is one we need them to we need to honor uh, the treaty tribal obligations they're important for our economy our culture and our ecosystem that's awesome yeah definitely very important it looks like we've got the whole social biological and then Mm -hmm. i know there's some economic impacts there as well um can you tell us about the life cycle of a salmon and how they migrate yeah sure so I'm not really the expert on salmon, so mm-hmm. in my office, really, we look to the experts to tell us about salmon. Um, and so the experts in our minds, again, are the Native American tribes with their traditional ecolog- uh, ecological knowledge, but also their learning in terms of science. We look to state and federal agencies and their scientists and universities. Um, and so really, the thing about salmon is, I'll tell you in a minute, just you know, an overview of what we know but we're continuing to learn and and we really rely on the most uh, the latest and most important science. Uh, so it, that's an ongoing process. But in general, most salmon follow the same life history trajectory, which is they spawn in the rivers, which means they lay their eggs in the rivers, which are called reds. So they nest in the rivers. Um, and, and most people know that they come back to the same place to lay their eggs. Then their, uh, their eggs are in the gravel and buried in the gravel. And then there, uh, the little fish or fry emerge, uh, or the um, fish emerge from the eggs, and then they live in the stream as fry. And they'll live in the stream for one to two years, and then they'll migrate to the ocean where they'll live for two to five years. And then they'll migrate back to the streams where they were born, and they'll spawn, and then they'll die, unless they're steelhead, which can spawn multiple times. But steel, salmon will die and then they'll start that life cycle all over again and and 
you know, anyone that's spent any time with salmon knows this. And actually, most of the fifth graders in Washington know more about salmon than most of the adults anywhere else in the country. We have a really good uh, program in terms of educating our youth, and it's amazing. Uh, you know, everybody loves to go out and see salmon, but, you know, kids especially love to get out and see salmon. And so I know that there are a lot of fifth graders that know much more about salmon than I do, actually. But, um, but, but one of the things with salmon is that they'll, they're, they're, it's varied across the species and there's a lot of variation within species. So some will spawn way high in the watersheds, like coho salmon, for example, and others will spawn near the mouth of the rivers, like mm -hmm. chum. Then some will stay in the river as young fish for maybe one or two years before they go to the ocean. And some will migrate right after they leave the, the gravel as little fry, they'll go to the, the marine area and then they'll shoot out to the ocean really young. So um, there's a lot of vari variability, variability, but one thing we have learned is that the estuaries and the floodplains and all these areas where the, where the salmon spend, or, you know, grow up as teenagers, I like mm -hmm. to think of it, are very important. And now those are some of the most important areas that we're working on for restoring salmon and protecting because it's that that's kind of that life stage it's mm -hmm. very important so they can grow to get big enough to survive the ocean that's incredible yeah it sounds like the salmon have quite an amazing journey and now i think i should talk to a fifth grader about salmon if you know any let me know um yeah <laughs> we'll do. um before you were talking about that you had mentioned how you consult the experts when you're dealing with um uh you know learning about salmon and you mentioned the indigenous um voices and then um, scientists, why is that important um, to consult with the experts when you're doing salmon recovery? Yeah, one, um, well, maybe the main reason is that, um, you know, we're making big and making large investments in recovery, whether it's what we're thinking about what we need to protect or what we need to restore. And so, in order to be strategic about that, we need to have the best available information so we're making the best possible choices. Um, and we, we can rely on, on some degree, we can rely on what we've learned or what we've, what we've known for many years for, uh, you know, maybe from different surveys or information that's been published. But in many cases, the, the information we're learning now is giving, giving us much, much more specific information about, you know, which part of the salmon's like, which part are they, are they most uh, constricting or which part might be most constricting recovery. We like to think of it like a bottleneck. Okay. Is there a bottleneck in their, in their life history that if we can release that bottleneck, we'll actually unlock, uh, you know, unlock a lot of salmon just by taking actions in a specific area. And I think this is, this really points back to this idea of, of estuaries and floodplains and really helping salmon in this in, in this stage of their life where they're really rearing in the fresh water. One, um, we've protected a lot of salmon habitat for for spawning, and we need to protect more. But if we can have, um, you know, if, if all the salmon are spawning and then all those salmon are coming out of the gravel and they're moving downstream, but then half of them are dying because there's not enough habitat for them to rear in, or they can't rear in the habitat. Instead, they move out to the ocean if they're too small mm -hmm. and they get eaten out in the ocean. Um, all that investment that we made to, to help the uh, salmon 
uh, and, and protect spawning habitat isn't really leveraged to really help the salmon. So but to, we really need to have the most up-to-date information. And like I said, because, uh, because uh, tribes have been here for so long, they have kind of the long-term view and they also have really uh, relevant science because they know the watersheds very well. Mm-hmm. And then we have other scientists that can kind of uh, work with uh, work across the landscape and use the information that's collected by mainly by the tribes and the state agencies or who collect the data. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I definitely like for me, it makes sense as to why we need these experts, but there's still sometimes is a little bit of pushback to science based mm-hmm. policy. And I think you gave a really good explanation as to why. And, you know, for all of my listeners and they, you know, this is why we need to listen to science and in all aspects of how we can help the southern residents. Um, but that's very, very crucial um, information that you just shared with us. So over the last hundred years, um, we've seen the decline in the salmon, which is obviously impacts of, you know, anthropogenic causes. What kind of has happened over the last hundred years and how have the salmon been impacted? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks for asking. Um, when we talk about salmon and the impacts, we tend to talk about them, at least, especially when, when salmon were first uh, put on the Endangered Species Act list, we tend to talk about them in the context of the four H's, which are habitat, harvest, hydro, and hatcheries. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these are really the things that have most impacted salmon uh, and led to their listings on Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more recently, and, and so that was in the late 1990s when salmon were listed uh, on many of the salmon anyway across the Pacific Northwest were listed on the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. And more recently, since then, we've added predators. We recognize that predators play, play a huge role. Pollution plays a really vital, critical role. Fish passage, uh, that means uh, areas where salmon are blocked from moving upstream and downstream mm-hmm. in the rivers are really important. And then Obviously, climate change is kind of the umbrella that sits over all of these factors that can that can kind of um, uh, exacerbate issues. So that that's maybe more recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you wanting to maybe talk about maybe the more historical context? Yeah, or? we can. It's always good to have a little context. Okay. Yeah. So, you know. Um, in terms of the history of salmon, like I said, they've been in the Pacific Northwest uh, for millions of years. Uh, during that time, over thousands of years, they were here with uh, with Native American tribes and were very important, like I said, for their culture, for their economy. But as, as Europeans begin to settle in Washington, especially, um, you know, probably not the earliest, earliest Europeans were here, but what I'd say post uh, Lewis and Clark. So mm-hmm. post the 1800s and then into the late 1800s, um, you know, there were a lot of activities that began to really impact salmon. So um, there was mining and logging that occurred. And then there were fisheries associated with canneries uh, that really those, those things especially impacted salmon as far back as the late 18, uh, 1890s, which is hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. So there were these early impacts. Um, somehow salmon persisted through that. And there was some recognition early on that, hey, we, need, we, we cannot do this to the habitat and we can't fish salmon to this extent or we'll just lose mm-hmm. them. So there was a the recognition. So there was some, some minor changes, 
but there are also things that happened over the course of the next hundred years from the 1900s to the to the late late 19 i mean from the yeah all through the 1900s there were dams that were put in place and then there were other activities like development we and we tend to settle right where salmon like to live along the shoreline and so over the next hundred years we you know uh, Washington was really settled, and it was those impacts combined with kind of those early impacts that led to these these Endangered Species Act listings in the late 1990s, and which is what we're currently the situation we're currently in. So there are currently 14 species that are listed on the Federal Endangered Species Act in Washington, and there are 28 species across the West Coast that are listed. Wow, that's it seems like a lot and it seems like they've been on there for a while. I just listened to um like a seminar that was talking about endangered species and they said that um only like or that only 1% of animals listed on the Endangered Species Act haven't been taken off or like haven't ultimately been saved. So um hopefully that's okay, but it seems like they've been there for a long time. So what is the current state of the salmon then? Yeah, so the st- current state of the salmon, um, I would say in my, many parts of the state, it's um, especially more recently, it's 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 been more in a crisis mode. And so we just released a new report called the State of Salmon mm-hmm. in Watersheds Report. It's a report that my office puts out every two years. And really, we're, we're ringing the alarm bell saying, hey, we're, there's a crisis. That said, we do have a couple of bright spots across the state. One of them is in Hood Canal. So this is an area where we have a species called Hood Canal summer chum. They were put on the Endangered Species Act uh, in 1998. And we have actually seen quite a bit of progress. And we're even talking about, you know, how do we begin to put them on a trajectory towards uh, delisting, which is what the process is for getting species off of the Federal Endangered Species Act. and um, had already it, it began to start to have those conversations with the federal agency, the um, and that is the National uh, uh, Atmospheric Administration uh, Associate. Wait, uh, NOAA, National yes. Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So NOAA, working with NOAA to get them off the Endangered Species Act list. That's but anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I, the point there is that there are a few bright spots in Washington, mm-hmm. although what's happened more recently is um, we had several species. So I would start with we're in crisis now. <laughs> um, and this crisis is due to some recent impacts. I think that it sort of created a perfect storm with the climate change mm-hmm. impacts and then uh impacts that are related to drought and related to uh, low flows. And if you look back maybe five or six or seven years ago, we were seeing some progress for species like steelhead in the interior Columbia. We were seeing, you know, slowing the decline Mm -hmm. for salmon across the state. And we were seeing, like I said, with Hood Canal summer chum, we were seeing um, progress and towards recovery. Nice. But about, you know, in 2015, a blob sort of settled off our coast. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, due to droughts, due to flows, warm water, we 
we've seen some um, impacts to those species that we thought we were seeing progress with. And so mm -hmm. that's why we're in part ringing the alarm bell saying, we have to do more to help buffer in the freshwater to help buffer the situation in, in the marine system. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like it's, it's very similar to the orcas where it's not just one solution. There's a bunch of things that that's need right. to be done. Um, sure. so they're still currently endangered and there are, is it all five species are endangered or? Well, there, um, there are two, there's sort of two, two categories, mm -hmm. uh, that, that are most relevant for this conversation. There's threatened and endangered. Mm -hmm. So we have many species that are threatened. Um, uh, and then we have a couple of the, a couple of species that are endangered in Washington, mm -hmm. but, um, but they're all on the endangered species. There's 14 on the Endangered Species Act list. And um, for the most part, not all species are listed everywhere. And, um, you know, it's kind of very specific. So we have, for example, in Puget Sound, we have Puget Sound Chinook, and we have Puget Sound Steelhead that are threatened on the Endangered Species Act list. Yeah. In the Upper Columbia, we have Upper Columbia spring chinook that are uh on the endangered list so as you move across the state it's very specific and if you look in the if you uh send your listeners to our report like i said the 2020 state of salmon report we have it in the front part of the report which species are listed and where they are located awesome we'll um include that in the description bio so you guys can all click that and go explore um Awesome. Yeah, that's very helpful. So I know that this is a more difficult question to ask, but what would it look like um, if we didn't have salmon in the Pacific? Yeah, well, salmon are, are uh, you know, vital for Washington. Um, I would say maybe start with, you know, why they're vital. They're vital for uh, us meeting our treaty tribal obligations. So in Washington, uh, we have many treaty tribes, 24 actually, and um, these tribes, many of these tribes signed treaties in the mid-1850s that ceded their land for their ability to hunt and fish in their usual and accustomed hunting and fishing grounds. And if we don't have salmon, we're, we're not meeting those federal obligations. Mm -hmm. They're important for our economy. Um, we have, you know, fisheries. Mm -hmm. it, we have about 16,000 jobs across the state that are tied to that. Tourism, as you know, huge, uh, and just in general, but um, tied to people that are getting up. And if you think about them as being indicators of, our, of you know, the health of Puget Sound and the health of our rivers, uh, there's a tourism uh, industry, which was worth about $1.5 billion a year. People eat salmon. 32% of the people in Washington eat salmon. Um, they're important for our culture, not only for the uh, Native American tribe's cultures, but Washingtonians really relate to salmon, and it's, it's important. And then also they're key, they're key for our ecosystems. I think salmon, we can think of salmon as maybe like a canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. um, 138 species depend on salmon, including orca. Uh, so if salmon disappear, there would really be this domino effect. It would be a domino effect in the ecosystem. It would be a domino effect on our economy. Mm -hmm. And it would also, 
it would hinder our ability to meet our legal obligations, which would, you know, one, we wouldn't be meeting the obligations and would lead to uh, additional lawsuits and things of those nature. So um, a lot would happen if we if we lost salmon. So I think this is why so many people are working so hard to ensure that we don't we don't lose salmon. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's so obvious that it's so important and equally, if not more complex than all the conservation issues with the southern residents. Um, so what do we need to do in order for the salmon to cover, to recover, which I realize is a big question because it's not like just one answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks again for the question. Um, there's probably, you know, maybe think of this in two ways. One way is maybe more broadly what's happening and then maybe we can talk about the individual. So uh, more broadly, you know, Washington has a uh, statewide salmon recovery strategy which is right in the process of being updated. And this is something that is um, managed out of the governor's office. It's kind of the, it's the, it's the statement of Washington on how we're going to recover salmon and, and why they're important. Um, and so updating that, um, we have an extensive, like I mentioned, an extensive volunteer network in Washington, and that's actually unique to Washington. So the Salmon Recovery Act, which was put in place in 1998, really outlines this whole network of regional recovery organizations and lead entity watersheds and regional fish enhan- fisheries enhancement groups and conservation districts and land trusts, you know, n- not all those organizations are named in the in the, the law, but it's really those organizations that come together to help us implement salmon recovery in Washington in terms of protection and restoration. Um, and then we talked about this earlier, but we have a, an extensive network of people that are doing science. Mm-hmm. And then we have many laws in place that are there to protect um, our shorelines. We have laws that uh, protect our critical areas and habitats that are not in the, in the, in the water, but like upland. Uh, we have laws that, that address stormwater and pollution and toxins and to keep those uh chemicals and pharmaceuticals and toxins from reaching our streams and waterways. And right now our focus is on um, really uh, engaging our network of, of people out in the, in, the, in the watersheds. It's building on all the, the, the laws in Washington that have helped us to protect habitat and making sure that we're complying with those existing laws. There have been um, you know, over the last four or five years, especially, there were a lot of rollbacks of our federal laws, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act. So there's an effort, we have a large effort on the federal front to push back against those rollbacks and make sure that we don't lose ground on those important federal laws. And so, um, and then if we dig in a little bit further, you know, or a little deeper, um, once we have compliance, then that helps us identify maybe where there are gaps in laws, and that's where we can work with our, our federal delegation or our state legislature to help us fill some of those gaps. So that's on the kind of that's on the global side or the yes. larger side. And then um, as individuals, there's a lot we can do. I mean, you, there's this big extensive network of volunteers, thousands of people. So I would encourage people, to, if you're not familiar with, with SAMR Recovery, again, visit our report. You can um, get information. And it, there are people working in every watershed 
to do this work. So it's easy to hook up, you know, to get connected with these organizations. And then as individuals, you know, it's really about being aware and, and doing things on a daily basis, just like we think about with climate change, you know, thinking about pollution, how we're washing our cars, how we're, how we're treating or dealing with pesticides, conservation of water and things like that. So there's a whole host of things we can do as individuals and groups. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, where can people find that network if they want to go and start volunteering? Yeah, so the, um, the easiest way is to um, go to the Recreation and Conservation Office. That's a state website, and they have a, um, that's uh, the agency I work for, and they have a whole section on salmon recovery. So if you just Googled salmon recovery and mm-hmm. Recreation and Conservation Office, it'll take you right to those, right to some links, and then you can get connected directly with the lead entity watersheds. Uh, there are 25 of them in the state and they have contact information and then you can find out about your regional recovery organization. So I think going to that website is probably the best place to start. Awesome. And I'll link that down here for people as well. Okay. Um, great. great. So it sounds like there's a whole lot of options for things that we want to do if we want to get actively involved in helping with salmon recovery. Um, and it sounds like you guys have it well organized, which is amazing because it makes it super easy for the public to get involved. Um, a question that I didn't put on here, and if you don't want to answer it, you definitely don't have to, but I'm curious, like just kind of about like your job and, and how, what kind of challenges do you face in like a policy position with the environment? Because I'm sure it's not easy to balance the social economic, like, an environmental side of everything while still making, you know, trying to make everyone happy, which is impossible. Well, um, yeah, I think, I think anybody that's um, working to, uh, in the natural resources probably faces the same challenge. Um, and even as an individual, you know, we all, we all have um, our lives and what we want, what we want to do and what we're trying to uh, accomplish day to day. But in my particular position um i think i think the main challenge that we face is less about my particular position and more about um you know washington and washingtonians and and what we what we face and you know i think we're all getting to the place where we understand um the way we've been doing things while it has worked for a long time it's not going to be sustainable into the future and so there's, I think, beginning to be a wider and wider recognition of that. So if that's the case, you know, what can we do both in the short term and the long term to make those changes? And I think, uh, I think the challenge is, uh, you know, being able to come together on things that we know need to happen but are uh, actionable and can, and can bring the people along and they can meet the needs um, of everyone at the table. And I just think it's, you know, it's just more of a societal issue than just my job is what I would say. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, we need to learn, you know, how to compromise and, and put everybody else's, put everyone's needs forward because they're all important. Um, and, you know, I'm glad to hear that you say that things are changing um, and that, you know, the way that we used to do things isn't the way we should do it now. And as humans, we got to learn. Um, yeah, I think you're right. That's a societal issue. I mean, in your opinion, what can we 
what can, I don't know, we as people do to change that or fix that? I know that's kind of a heavier question. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, it's heavy, but I think what we, when we look at things that have worked in, when we, when we look at things that have worked in this, in this area, <clears throat> like natural resource and, and sort of tackling these really tricky issues, what has always worked best is getting people at the table to talk about it. And when we look at what success will be seen across the state, there's a, there's a big effort in eastern Washington called the Yakima Basin Integrated Plan. And, you know, uh, it's, it's about people coming together, spending enough time at the table, being able to trust one another and understand that, you know, if, if they want water, it's going to take help. It's, it's going to take, uh, putting the, you know, extending their hand across the table to folks that might want something else on the other side. And, and I think that's still the only path we have to be successful. We need to, we really need to work together. And that is, um, that's something I've learned. And I think the challenge for us now is how do we, how do we effectively bring the people together and start and build the trust that's needed to, to sort of move these things forward. So I really think that's the only strategy that's, or the only thing we can do long-term that's going to be successful. I agree with you. And I, you know, I have a hot, a lot of hope listening to, you know, the way that you talk about things. Cause I know, I mean, the internet is never a good place to like learn about issues, but I think that's where they're on the forefront. And sometimes the conversations feel so angry and hostile that it's hard to partake. And it feels like um, everybody's on a different side, but it seems like we're all on the same side of a sustainable future for everybody. So I always ask people what we can learn from the orcas, but I want to know what you think we can learn from the salmon. Yeah, um, we can learn a great deal from the salmon. One thing we can learn is, I think, perseverance and hope mm -hmm. and, and persistence. You know, when we talk, we think about salmon, they've really been around for millions of years. They've seen a lot of changes. They've lived mm -hmm. through ice ages. And... Um, I think uh, I think what we can take away is that if uh, if they if they can make it on their own for that long, uh, I think we owe it to them to uh, give them a chance to be here for the next million years. And so that's what I take away from salmon hope and, and perseverance and persistence. Absolutely, um, and I think the orcas are resilient in that way, but the salmon are. They're definitely special. It doesn't seem like there's any other animal like a salmon. Um, excellent. Is there anything else that you think is helpful for the public to know about the salmon or this issue or just in general getting involved to help better the environment? Um, no, I, I, think the I think the main thing is just to, um, if you're new to Washington, recognize that there has been this work that's been going on forever and it's worth getting out and understanding more because if we if we all want to have the Washington that we see now it's going to take all of us working together to maintain that Washington absolutely yeah I think that that's really important and then Washington is truly a spectacular place it's worth preserving and keeping that way um excellent well I definitely appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight and I think that this will be helpful for people and there is lots of hope right now too i'm sure did you see that um l uh what is it l46 had a baby um surprise had another southern resident yes yes that's very hopeful that's three three orca babies that have been born you know over the last six months so 
if, if that doesn't give, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I'm not sure what does. So um, kind of like with that situation, I mean, now it's up to us to do all we can to make sure we give those baby orcas their best chance of survival, right? And so we all need to pull together, work together, be thinking about what we can do for orca. And one of the things we can do is help salmon because they're sure those orca are sure going to need salmon uh, to grow so they can, they can grow themselves. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much everybody for joining us. As always, if you want to support us, check out our Instagram, Facebook, or even our Patreon. Um, we definitely appreciate you guys listening in. And if you live in Washington, feel free to check out those organizations that you can go get involved in. I definitely urge people along the West Coast to see what they can do um, because that there are salmon um, watersheds throughout the West Coast of the United States and Canada. So go check that out. Um, thanks so much for listening and tune back in next week. I will give you guys a little bit of a warning. I am starting a new position that's going to be taking up a lot of my time. So um, I might start posting bi-weekly, but I will keep you guys posted. But in the meantime, have a whale of a week.